You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. This episode was recorded outside the studio, live on location. Our guest today is someone I've known for a long time and have admired for a long time. This gentleman is an Ironman triathlete and the founder of of the Recycled Man Foundation. Our guest today is Derek Fitzgerald. Derek, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. So tell us about the foundation, what its mission is, and the kind of work that it does. Okay. Well, the the mission of the Recycled Man Foundation is to help raise funds and awareness in the areas of cancer research for uh, to help promote uh, heart health, uh, and also to help promote and raise awareness uh, and funds for organ donation and transplantation. That's now, basically, that's in a nutshell. That And those are all three very, you know, obviously they're all health related, but they're f- three very different um, s- subject matter areas. Um, uh, to the first point about cancer, uh, cancer research, is there any any particular uh, type of the illness, whether it's it's blood cancer or uh, bone or 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 anything like that, or is it well, just predominantly blood cancers? Okay, and there's some spectacular research going on here in our backyard in the Philadelphia area uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, in terms of blood cancers, and, and there's a lot of evidence that points to the research that's going into blood cancers right now is applicable to all cancer across the board. Uh, and, and so that's what we're looking to do and to, and to try and help, you know, raise the funds to help fund these studies and, and raise awareness to help people going through their own cancer journey. Now, when did you found Recycled Man? When did that start? The Recycled Man Foundation was officially started uh, in 2015, but uh, it's, it was a uh, in name only. It was pretty much me, uh, uh, you know, since 2000 and probably 12. And it's been, and as you've, you know, walked down the, the non, you know, the nonprofit path um, is not an easy one. It's not necessarily like, you know, kind of stepping out and looking at things from a, a, a business standpoint. You know, it's not like you're opening um, a, a for-profit company where you can just select a name and get started. If it's a nonprofit, you've you have a board of directors you have to find. You have a whole lot of organizational things that you have to do um, with respect mm-hmm. to the IRS. Uh, to to get your nonprofit status and and all of that, how how was your experience on that front as you kind of f- more formalized uh, the foundation? 
you know, it's, it's been a learning curve, uh, quite honestly. And, and, um, in, you know, I've, I've had a number of for-profit businesses that, that I've, uh, either owned or been part owner of, uh, and quite honestly, you know, starting a nonprofit, it has been a labor of love, but at the same time, it's, it, I feel it's a responsibility that I have, uh, to give back. So, um, you know, that there hasn't been a, a lot much to it other than uh, from the technical perspective, you know, contacting the, the various attorneys involved and, and the IRS and making sure all that took place. But but that the where the rubber meets the road uh, has been just primarily uh, us getting out there and getting the name out there and 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 trying to make a difference. Now, with with respect to your your. I hate to call it a day job, but in terms of your for-profit activities, what's your professional background? What 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 do you do besides the foundation? I, I recall it being software, but I could have been mistaken. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. Uh, I up until about five years ago, I I owned a uh, technology company uh, based out of Norristown, Pennsylvania. I, I've I since sold that. Uh, and started another technology company. Um, I used to build software solutions for the pharmaceutical and healthcare companies uh, to help train and and educate physicians and sales reps in that area. And then five years ago, I I, I made a change, and I had an interest in helping the end patient and creating uh, tools, technology tools that would help improve quality of life. For everyone, you know, everyone that has to deal with health related issues, which is all of us. Um, right. So it's, uh, you know, the, the, the big idea was something that I developed uh, to help manage uh, disease states or, or, or health. It's, it's personalized health care. Uh, I built it uh, to help uh, people recover from any kind of serious physical uh, injury and recovery, but the applications of it in managing your diet, managing your exercise, uh, managing uh, your physiological, emotional, uh, you know, your, all of these things and, and then uh, tabulated into a dashboard that can then communicate back and forth with your physician team. It's, it's, it's not really dependent on one uh disease state, it, it could apply to anything, really. So so that's what I do. I try to help improve people's quality of life through my for-profit business. And then my nonprofit business does pretty much the same thing, but for, for cancer, heart health, uh, and organ donation and transplantation. Uh, you're, you're one of the few people that, that we've, uh, you know, most of the guests on the podcast have um, kind of a foot in the arts world in one way or another. And, and you and I met, that's sort of our, our backstories. We met while we were both members of a, a drum and bugle corps when we were kids. Or yeah. I, I think of it now that we're, now that, you know, I'm in my forties, I think of it as being a kid. Back right. Then. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but so, um, you know, the people that I know that know you, um, are constantly um, amazed, and not for the reasons that 
just for the reasons that we've already discussed, which some of the things the audience hasn't heard about yet, but uh, you know, running a for-profit business, running a foundation, you know, how how do you make it all work? I mean, it's it's you you must be going seven days a week. I, I, it's it's tough. Oh, absolutely. And then you throw in you know training, you know a, a rigorous training regimen of you know training for an Ironman, swimming, biking, running, lifting weights, maintaining diet and exercise. It's 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 nonstop. And how do I make it work? I don't know. I'll tell you when I feel like I've made it work. You know, <laughs> and that's this. You know what? That's really important. That's that's a very uh, excellent point. That it's always a process. There's always something more to do. There's always more training to do, or another initiative. You know, it's never. If you ever feel like you're in a place where you have it figured out, or you're done. You're probably um, not on the right track. I think people that are really high, high-performing individuals like you are constantly on a journey to learn, to grow, to expand whatever the activity, whether it's it's you know training for endurance sports or business or nonprofit activities. Um, that's something that really has struck me about you as I've watched your career from afar. Yeah. I mean, uh, to, to, to bring it back to the old days of uh, drum corps, um, you know, you, you give it your all every shot, you know, every, uh, every phrase, you know, you, you feel like you're completely spent and then somebody uh, at the top of a scaffold says, all right, back to the start, do it again. And, uh, and, and, you know, it stuck, um, all those years ago. Um, it doesn't matter how tired you are. You, you just, you do it over and over and over again until you get it right. And you, you rely on the people around you for lessons, for, for knowledge, for support, uh, for, you know, camaraderie and jokes and, and, and stuff to make the time go by more, more pleasantly. But, you know, it's, it's just work. That's, that's what it is. And, uh, sometimes you love it. Sometimes you hate it, but, uh, it's, it's what I've chosen to do. And, and like I said, it's my responsibility uh, to do these things. And, uh, and I love that I'm able to do it. So when, when you say that it's your responsibility, take us back to, you know, take us back several years and and maybe walk us through why why you feel that way. Okay. Well, uh, in a in a previous life, uh, I used to uh, I used to go around the the world and interview doctors. And uh, originally, it was uh, uh, cancer doctors, oncologists, and you know, find out about the state of cancer treatment. And at the time I had no, uh, no connection to cancer. I, I hadn't, no one in my family that I knew of had cancer. Um, so it was, it was very abstract to me. And, you know, they would tell me about the state of affairs of treatment of five and 10, 20 years in the past. And, you know, what it was like, 
to, to go through cancer treatment and what it was like for them as, as physicians to treat people with cancer. And they, they kind of compared it to stumbling around in the dark and hoping that they didn't kill people. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, they would talk about their, you know, the five-year survival rates. And if patients were lucky, the 10-year survival rates. And I'd just sit there and I'd listen to it. And in my head, like I said, I had no connection to it. But I just think, you know, these, these poor bastards uh, that have to go through this, uh, not knowing that I, I myself would be diagnosed with cancer when I turned 30. And, uh, and so I was, as I was approaching 30, I was putting all my time and efforts and energies into my career. I was not taking good care of myself. I would work 18, 20, 22 hour days, get up the next day and do it again. And every now and again, when I got the opportunity, I would drive through a drive through and pick up, you know, a triple cheeseburger and, you know, a shake and some fries and think, man, this is, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm exhausted, but at least I'm getting some food in me. And so when I started putting on pounds and when I started feeling, you know, like garbage, I pretty much attributed to the fact that I was, I was, I was running myself too hard. Um, I wasn't treating my body well and it was probably starting to break down a little bit. I was getting, I, I had hit 30. It was the big number. Mm hmm. And I figured, ah, oh, it's all downhill from here, but I'm, I'm expecting it. What I didn't expect was when the doctors found a, a tumor the size of a grapefruit in my intestines. So um, that kind of, that was a big two by four across, you know, the back of my head because I'm, I'm stubborn. And, uh, you know, it was a wake up call. Um, and so I went through my chemotherapy treatments and I, I, I went through all the, the, the stereotypical things that you, you hear about. I lost all my hair. Um, I was nauseous. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd throw up. Um, and, uh, you know, I thankfully got through all of it. And, you know, uh, my wife and I kind of looked at each other and breathed a sigh of relief and said, all right, well, we dodged a bullet there. So I'm anxious to get back to work. What was your, when the, when you initially received the diagnosis, uh, around what year was this? Let's see, uh, I guess 2003. So you had already been, so you were married at that time already or for how long or, or where does it relate to the, when you got married? Yeah, I was, I, I'd been married since 2000, so three years. Okay. And so, and the diagnosis happens in 03 and, and, you know, what did the doctors tell you about survivability or, you know, what the prognosis was? They, uh, they told me, well, basically they did the surgery to take the tumor out. And thankfully this, they said that at the time of the tumor resection, I was technically in remission. Things looked good. It didn't look like the tumor. It didn't look like the, the cancer had spread into any of the surrounding organs, but that they wanted to put me through chemotherapy as a precautionary measure. Um, but that things looked really positive. So, you know, for me, it, it was a, you never want to get the, the cancer diagnosis. It's scary. You know, it, it knocks you on your rear end. And, you know, you start thinking about, 
your own mortality and, and, you know, the, the kind of legacy that you want to leave. But, but ultimately the, the, the cancer journey for me, um, at that time I thought it was fairly brief. I was like, Oh, great. You know, I've, I've, you know, I, I, the doctors think that it's a good shot that I'll make it through this. And you know, they take it out. They do do the surgery. Um, they severed my abdominals basically from, you know, four, you know, three inches below my chest down mm-hmm. to just below my waistline. So I had to recover from that. Wow. And, and obviously the abdominals play a big role in, uh, in how you hold yourself, how you get around. Um, but you know, aside from, from getting over that and going through, re, you know, physical rehabilitation, you know, I was just eager to get back to work and, and get back with my life. Um, and so, yes, I'd been hit by a two by four and yes, it was a huge scare in my life, but I was too stubborn to really take notice of what was going on. Um, but, uh, you know, from that point, three months out of being declared in remission, uh, I started having breathing difficulties and, uh, and from there quickly found out that one of the drugs in my chemotherapy cocktail, uh, had damaged my heart. And so the, the cancer journey, although I had been declared in remission and chemotherapy had saved my life, it had left me uh, in, you know, probably even more dire straits because, you know, the, the, the number two cancer in all the United States, uh, the, the number two killer in all the United States for, U- you know, for U.S. citizens is cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one killer is heart disease. And so my cancer treatment left me with heart disease. Now, was that a, you know, for, for those of us who, who, you know, aren't, you know, completely tuned into this, when, you know, the risks that are disclosed, and, you know, of course, no physician can disclose every possible ramification of, of, of you know, a course of treatment, but in terms of people receiving chemotherapy, how likely was it that you could in, in experience heart damage as a result of, of the chemotherapy protocol that you were on? Well, it's, it's funny because I remember the nurse sitting down next to me uh, on the first day of getting chemo. And all the chemo drugs they put into a plastic bag, they hang, you know, an IV drip, they hang from the pole next to you. Um, all of the drugs except for one. And the one is this red bag of uh, this drug called adriamycin. And they say, listen, there's adriamycin is really dangerous. Uh, if, you know, we're going to have to sit here and put it in a needle and put it into your arm. And the nurse has to sit there and push the plunger of the syringe into your arm over the course of like a half an hour or whatever the infusion time is. So she just has to sit there and slowly push, and you just kind of have a conversation. She's like, listen, the risk of this getting out and damaging your heart is very, very small. It's like 2%. You know, and, you know, the, you know so at 2%, the likelihood of it happening is very small. And if that happens, we'll cross that bridge if we have to. But, 
we know more about hearts than we knew about than we know about cancer. So this is your best shot to get rid of your cancer. So, but two percent, up to you. And uh, and I said, yeah, let's do it. You know, but you know they they tell you if it feels weird, if it feels funny, if it hurts, let them know immediately, and and they'll stop. Mm-hmm. They'll figure an, another way. But you know, w- when you're going through cancer and you're hooked up to an IV drip and and you're feeling crummy anyway, you don't really know what's cancer crummy or what's what's weird, what's not weird. Right. You know, it, it, I, I felt like garbage all the time anyway. So this was just a different, you know, different form of feeling like, like crap. So you get to the point where your cancer surgery has been completed and you're out of the hospital. Where, where was the, the procedure was done in Philly? Uh, the procedure was done in uh, Montgomeryville. So, uh, uh, you know, out in the Lansdale area. Right. Out in the uh, Philly, for, for people not from the Northeast, uh, Derek. Northwest Philly, Philly Burbs. Yeah. Northwest Philly Burbs, maybe 30 minutes outside of, outside of uh, town. Yes. Yeah. And, and you get to a point where you experience shortness of breath and what happens next? Well, at first, I thought, you know, it was just remnants of, you know, recovering from, from you know, chemotherapy, but it was three months out. And so I, I went to the ER one night and they said, oh, we think you have pneumonia. And they treated me for pneumonia and that didn't get any better. You know, the, the breathing issues didn't get any better. And then they, they thought that I had pleurisy. Uh, so they thought I had the rubbing of the lining of the lung. Uh, in the chest and that they treated that and that didn't get any better. And then mm-hmm. finally this, I go in yet another time late night in the ER and this new doctor, you know, does all these, these new tests like echocardiograms and EKGs and ultrasounds and things that I just hadn't been through, uh, you know, stress tests. Right. And, and finally after a battery of tests, he comes up to my bedside. It's the wee hours of the morning and he says, Derek, I'm a cardiologist, and I know you've had a rough go of it in this past year, um, but I'm afraid I have more bad news. You've got heart failure. And, you know, if there's anybody you, you want to – it's pretty bad. You know, you're basically on the verge of needing to go on the heart transplant waiting list. If you need to call anybody, here's the phone, and I'll give you a few minutes to process this. And that w- that was my introduction to heart failure. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I I'd, I'd gotten accustomed to heading into the ER late night, and I I had used at one point I would call and let my friends and family know, hey, you know, the, the, my mom and dad, my mom and dad, I would say, hey, you know, I'll be in the ER tonight, and, and they they were concerned. But after a while, after so many trips, it kind of you're like, oh, okay, just back to the ER. And, you know, I had to say, hey, listen, we're not out of the woods yet. And, uh, and it's bad. So I went, uh, basically, they figured out very quickly that I needed a pacemaker defibrillator implanted um, because I had a, an irregular heartbeat because it was so weak. It was growing larger. Uh, so to... To compensate for the poor function of the heart, the heart grows stronger. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the heart grows larger and right. weaker at the same time. Um, so my heart was was growing larger. It's uh, 
dilated cardiomyopathy. It was what I was diagnosed with. And I would have, you know, dizzy spells and, and weakness and fatigue. And I just dealt with it. You know, I, um, like I said, I'm pretty stubborn. So I just put my head down and said, all right, this is what I'm dealing with. So let's move ahead. And so I went to, I, I, I went back to work and, and had my pacemaker defibrillator just in case anything went wrong. I took a lot of medications and I, I, I made the best of it for seven years. Um, until finally after seven years of this, my heart finally got to the point where my doctor said, listen, it's not getting any better. In fact, you've gotten worse. And the only way uh, for you to, to survive this, your only shot is a heart transplant. So. So I don't know what you even, you know, say to that. Um, I mean, I've had uh, family members who, um, have been in a similar position. And I know it's, you know, it's absolutely uh, gut-wrenching for everybody in, you know, you, your wife, your family, um, you know, from the time that the doctor has that conversation with you to the time where, how long were you on the transplant list? I was on the list for four months. So you go through the compatibility testing, you know, they take your blood type and, you know, your, your, your height, your weight, and, uh, and all the things that they need to determine who would be a, a suitable donor. Uh, and then I waited for four months. And then, you know, I, I came down. I, I was, at the time, it was December of uh, 2010. No, actually, late November 2010. I was the, the dizzy spells and the weakness and the fatigue was pretty much my entire day. I was bedridden most of the time. I had deteriorated to the point where I couldn't lie down to sleep anymore because if I lied down, my lungs would fill up with fluid because my heart wasn't strong enough to, to pump the fluid out of the lungs. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was, um, an extremely trying existence because I wasn't able to do anything you know, anymore the, the way I remembered or thought I should be able to as a, uh, a 37, 30 year, 38 year old guy. Um, while this is happening, you know, to, to look at it from another angle, what happened to who's running your business while this, while you're in this state or tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, at the hardly the most important point of the story, but I'm just curious. Uh, the business I owned at the time, I had two partners, uh, and thankfully they were able to pick up the slack. Uh, and you know, there were you know anywhere between twenty and thirty employees, and you know everybody just stepped up and got the job done. I once I was put on the heart transplant waiting list, uh, it. Uh, I, I, I took a leave from work mm -hmm. and I just focused on trying to do the things that I wanted to do. And, and basically that's what they tell you. You know, there are, you know, people that go on the heart transplant waiting list or go on any organ waiting list and 
you know, the organ doesn't come in time. And so the first thing they tell you to do is to get your affairs in order. Um, and, uh, and even if an organ does come in that's compatible, uh, or they think is compatible, there's, there's no promise or guarantee that, you know, you make it out of surgery. So right. it's, it's an extremely, extremely terrifying. I mean, being in that position, uh, I, I, I call it, uh, swapping out the engine while the plane's mid flight. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a position you want to be in. That being said, um, you know, I, I mean, I was thankful for my, uh, my, my partners who were able to, to pick up the slack and, and, you know, keep the doors open of the, to the, to the business. But that, that was, you know, the last thing on my mind. Well, sure. I mean, I, I guess my point was that there is a community of people that will, will rise up, you know, around you, whether it's family members, you know, close friends or, uh, yeah. or, or, or business people to help things stay in motion while you focus on what is most important. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened. So this, so you have the heart transplant. This occurs, what, what year are we in now? We're in 2010? 20, 2011, January 3rd, um, I received my heart. And tell us about, you know, walk us through the recovery aspects of, of, the, of this procedure a little bit. Sure. Well, in ju just a, a, a general brush, receiving a heart transplant is similar to being hit by a Mack truck. Uh, your sternum's cracked. You know, it's obviously very invasive. They set, you know, they, they remove your old heart. You're, you're placed on a, uh, a bypass machine to keep you alive mm -hmm. while they place the new heart in. You're flooded with fluids. Um, so you swell up like, you know, a stuffed sausage and especially after the, for me, it all gathered in my feet, ankles, legs, you know, thighs. Um, but, uh, you know, you wake up with miles of tubing coming out of your chest. You've got tubing coming out of your, your mouth. So it's down your throat. Um, you've got drainage tubes, you know, basically buckets, uh, catching all the fluids and they're measuring everything. Uh, so you're in pretty bad shape and, uh, to, to compound matters, um, you're on high doses of steroids. So prednisone, and that will, uh, inflate your, your, your blood sugar glucose levels and give you, uh, diabetes, you know, transplant induced diabetes. And if you don't manage that with diet and exercise, um, then that within like three months of, of your, your, your surgery, that becomes permanent. So you're put on, you're immediately put on a cardiac and diabetic diet. Now, because I had been, you know, out of it, uh, and, and in such bad shape, I'd been losing weight progressively. Um, Probably 2006, I was 200 pounds. 2008, I was 175 pounds. Uh, 
by 2011, by the time I got the heart transplant, I was 100 uh, 155 pounds. Uh, and then the months following, because I was on these strict diets, I got down to 128 pounds. So I completely atrophied. Wow. Um, so I was skin and bone and, uh, and I, I literally had to start from square one and, and that I couldn't lift my head from a pillow, um, if I was lying down in bed, but if someone pulled me up and got me to my feet, I could stagger. You know, I'm staggering on feet that are swollen like footballs because of the the, the transplant bypass, the heart bypass machine, uh, and you have to get rid of that through walking out, walking it out, and and uh, going to the bathroom and sweating, and you have to exercise. And when you've been given the equivalent of being hit by a truck, it's the last thing you want to do. Now you've you know, visiting this part of your life in such detail makes, you know, the, the future years that you're about to describe even more unbelievable in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a good way, in a triumphant way. Um, and, you know, from go, going from the point where you have a hard time lifting, you know, your head off the pillow and anyone that's you know, whether it's pneumonia or, you know, some other illness that has felt weak, has never felt weak like what you just described. I mean, it's a totally different thing. Um, how did, I know you took a trip to Hawaii after that. Are we yes. going, are we jumping forward too many years or is, was, uh, that, was that the start of what came well, next? Well, really, um, I was just thankful to be alive at that point. And yeah, I, I went to Hawaii and that was just a family vacation at the time. If you, if that's what you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, you know, I learned, I, I, I tried to get my scuba certification in Hawaii cause I thought that would be fun. Um, but, uh, I got, uh, I got stranded out there in Hawaii because I injured, injured myself during my scuba certification. Surprise, surprise. Adding insult to injury, I couldn't get off the island. The rest of my family went home, and I was on the island by myself for another 10 days, I think. Mm -hmm. and what, was, so, what, what was the injury? Just uh, uh, blood gas thing with the depth and all that? or Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, I came as close as you can possibly come to rupturing your inner ear without actually rupturing it. So oh, it was severely damaged. I couldn't get on a plane because of the, the change in cabin pressure. Right. Um, so even driving around the Island, if, if, if it got up too high, you know, it felt like my head was going to explode. My eardrum was going to fly out the side of my head. So I got a bike. I'd heard that there's this thing called an Ironman on the big Island of Hawaii in Kona. Uh, and, uh, and I just happened to be staying at a hotel that was basically right off the course of the Queen K Highway, which is this major highway along the western coast of, uh, of the Big Island. And so I went to a bike shop, and I got a bike. And I rode, you know, maybe 10 miles on a, on a triathlon bike just to say, oh, this is cool, you know, heart transplant, riding the, the Queen K uh, you know, it's, it's not possible, but, uh, 
uh, you know, I had uh, I had started uh, training with Team and Training at that point, and I had already run my first 5K, mm-hmm. and and I had run a half marathon with them, and that okay. was the and ten and ten men training um, just is what exactly. Ten men endurance racing is a group of heart transplant recipient athletes. Uh, I started that with another cancer surviving heart transplant recipient uh, by the name of Kyle Garlett. And he's been, he's, his transplant is a little older than mine, but he's been an icon in the transplant world and writing books and, and these things for years. And, and he and I became buddies on Facebook and we started 10 men endurance racing because the transplant world is a fairly small one. When you become an athlete after something like a heart transplant, it's an even smaller community. A right. triathlete in the, in the heart transplant community is yet even smaller. So he and I became, you know, very close that way and, you know, sharing stories back and forth. We started 10 men to help promote organ donation awareness and, and to celebrate second chances. How how long of a time period was it between, you know, you being discharged from the hospital with the heart transplant to the first 5K run that you did? Eight months. And then the half marathon followed about two, how far after that? Two months after that. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I mean, it really is. Uh, you can't, you know, to get... Um, I mean, 13 miles is no joke. Like I think anybody that is reasonably fit that puts their mind to it can get through a 5k or a 10k even, but you know, there's something about that half marathon distance, at least in my mind that it's, you cannot fake that. You really have to dedicate yourself to getting, getting in shape and, and getting through the training period without injuring yourself is, is not uh, a small feat either, because if you don't, uh, if you don't approach it the right way and spread the training out, you run risks of spraining things and, and, uh, you know, injuring yourself in ways that it takes a little while to recover from. So. Absolutely. You have to respect the distance and and make a commitment that that's what you're going to do. So what was the, the, the spark of the idea though, in in getting into distance running how did that arise well while i was still in the hospital recovering from the heart transplant um my co-workers sent me uh, a, a, a movie prop replica i uh, i used to take them to you know imax movies for fun i'd take the whole company out down the block to see and i'm a big action blockbuster movie and and one of the movies that i'd taken to see was iron man and uh you know robert downey jr iron man not a triathlon iron man and and (laughs) they they sent me uh iron man's heart so it was a movie pop prop replica and it you know proof that tony stark has a heart in this case and proof uh, proof that you know i had a heart and uh it was it was awesome and i i thought iron man huh wouldn't it be cool if one day i was able to do an iron man um, I, I don't even know what that means at that time. Um, and then I, I found out that it's a 2.4 mile swim 
followed by a 112 mile bike ride, followed by a marathon. So it's 140.6 total miles. And I was like, yeah, right. (laughs) Not happening, but it's a nice thought. Move along. And, uh, and, and that's, that was what really put the idea in my head and just as quickly took it from my head as something that would not be a, a reality for a guy like me after what I'd been through. So you train for the half marathon mm-hmm. and, you know, at some point the, the endurance, uh, not that a half marathon is not an endurance event, it is, but at some point the idea of endurance sports really takes hold of you. Oh, absolutely. And, and what I wanted to do was, was to honor my donor. Um, you know, the, the gift that I've been given is one that I'll, I'll never be able to repay. Um, every heartbeat that I have is theirs. And, and really the best way that I've found to, to honor this person is to, to respect the gift um, by taking as good of care of my body as I can and then doing, you know, crazy things like an endurance event, to, you know, to raise awareness and to let this, let everybody know that the, the person, all I, although I don't know who this person was, you know, to let them know that this person was a hero, an unknown hero that, that saved the life of a complete stranger. And, and so when I go out and, and I do, you know, a half marathon or a marathon or a triathlon, it's, it's, it's an honor. It's a, it's a tribute to, for me to, to be able to do that for this person. When was the first the first triathlon that you ever uh, uh, entered? The, was was when April of two thousand and twelve. So even that is not that far removed in time from the no. heart transplant. I mean, that's it, this is all happening at such a compressed uh, timeline. It's it's really uh, pretty astonishing that you can evolve from being discharged to the hospital to 5k to half marathon to, um, and I, and I know there's maybe just to give everybody a little bit of perspective, like there are different, you know, there's an Olympic distance triathlon, there's an Ironman. What's the difference between those two? Sure. Um, an Olympic distance is, uh, is what is, is a 0.97, uh, mile swim followed. Let me see here. It's uh, I'm actually looking it up because I, I, I haven't done a, an Olympic in a while, but it's uh, 0.93 mile swim. It's a 24.8 mile bike ride. Um, and then, uh, and, and then a run, which is, uh, let's see here. It's a 6.2 mile run. So it's roughly 30, 31 miles. Uh, and that's what I did in April of, of 2012. And then in May, a month later, I did my first half iron, which is uh, a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, followed by a 13.1-mile run. Where did, where did that take place? Where were you for that event? Florida. It was the, uh, the Ironman uh, Florida half. And so to, to prep for... Um, you know, to prep for the, the, you know, the half Ironman, 
what what does the training schedule look like in terms just in general terms of of you know how far out do you start getting prepared for something like that uh it's for well i i would say for the standard everyday person is probably three months, five months. And, uh, for me, it was literally from the time that I, I was able to take my first steps, you know, of recovery in 2011 to, uh, to, to right there in, uh, in, in, you know, May of 2012, I, I, it took me a long time. It took me a year and, uh, you know, I, I still, I learned to swim and bike uh, through team and training in January, starting in January of 2012. I mean, I I'd biked as a kid, I'd swam as a kid, but you know, my swimming basically was comprised of cannonballs and belly flops. I was never <laughs> on a swim team. Right. I was gonna. Well, I was gonna ask you if you had had any, you know, in high school or, or college, you know, swim team no. kind of thing. But no, no, nothing like that. I was a big cannonballer and I, you know, I, I was a goofball. So, um, to actually learn how to freestyle swim was new for me. So I, I picked that up in uh, through team and training in January of 2012. Um, and then cycling, you know, I hadn't ridden a bike since I, I was in junior high. So it was a considerable amount of time. And, uh, and so basically from January to, uh, to May, I trained for, well, the, the Olympic distance try in April and then the, the half iron in May. And from the time that you completed the, the half or the half iron man, sorry, in, um, in, in Florida, when, do, when was the first full iron man that you completed? First full iron man was July of 2013. So it was a year later. Wow, and that would now did that event happen in in Hawaii or was that something that else? Lake Placid, New York. So uh, at the time, I was uh, in 2012. I went up and volunteered at the Ironman in Lake Placid, and and it's so difficult. It's so competitive to get into these events. It sells out. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways you you get in is is to volunteer the year prior. And they give you first dibs, you know, at, uh, they give all the participants first dibs at registering for the following year. And then after all the participants, you know, have a shot at registering, if their slots open, they, they open it up to the volunteers. And if there's any slots after that, they open it up to the, the general public. And so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see it, get a feel for what an Ironman looked like, what people looked like crossing the finish line. And, uh, and if I saw it and if I thought I could do it, I would sign up. And that's what I did. Um, I saw people just coming across the finish line in Lake Placid in 2012 as I was watching. And I saw them just collapsing, you know, completely spent. And I thought, you know what? If they can cross the finish line and collapse, then, you know, then what am I worried about? Um, you know, I'm not even supposed to be here to begin with. So I'm just going to give it everything I have. And, uh, and I knew that at the time, no cancer survivor slash, you know, heart transplant had ever, had ever finished a full iron. Um, so what the heck, why not give it a shot? 
<laughs> that's not, you know, that, that thought process is what separates you from everybody else, dude. <laughs> like, you know, most people would say, well, no one's ever, like, just to let that sink in for people who are listening, no person in history has ever, as a cancer survivor and heart transplant recipient, has ever completed this event. So Derek is the first one in the world. Now, most people, when they get to that place in the decision tree, go, oh, well, nobody's ever done it, so it's impossible, or it, or it can't be done. But you kind of turn right into that those odds and, and just plow forward. Well, you know, <laughs> you know uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, one, it, it was an honor for me to, to even attempt it. And I was so happy to be there. But I, I also kind of relate it to, uh, there's a scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, where they're being hunted down and they're on the edge of a cliff, you know, and everybody's shooting at them. And the only way to to get away is to jump off the cliff. And, right. you know, the, the one guy says, well, I'm afraid of heights. And he says, what are you, crazy? You know, you know the, the fall will probably kill you. So what are you worried about? So they, they jump off the edge of the cliff. Um, I'm, uh, I, I've, it took all the pressure off. No one had ever done it. If I had failed, then, you know, at least I gave it a good go and there would be no, no embarrassment and, you know, no skin off my back. I, I gave it a shot. But if I made it, then, you know, it would, it would be another way for me to honor this person that I don't know and, and, to, and to raise awareness. And that's, that's what I went with. So what's next for you? What do you, what do you have coming up over uh, the next, next couple of events? Uh, well, I've, uh, I've got the transplant games in Ohio this year. Um, that's coming up soon. Uh, I've got, uh, I've got a half Ironman in the Poconos coming up in August. And I've got another full Ironman uh, in September this year in Wisconsin. And, you know, to bring it back to the foundation, you know, we want people, whether they're, it doesn't matter if you're in southeastern PA or on the East Coast, wherever you are, whether it's in Texas or California, we've got people that listen to this in Europe and Australia and, and pretty far-flung places. How, how do we find out about the foundation? What's, where, where can we, where's, where are you on the web? Uh, you can just go to recycledman.com. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, you'll have a link, I, I guess. And yep. Yeah. The, the, the podcast page, if, if you go to creativeconfidential.net, Derek's episode will be, uh, is up and we, we are linking to recycled man foundation. Um, and can we, so let's say I want to donate or support you in some way, which everybody should, uh, how do, how do we go about doing that? Uh, there should be a link to donate right on the recycled man homepage. And if there's not, it will be shortly. <laughs> and if there's not, we're working on it right now as we speak. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what more, you know, anybody can say about, the causes that you support or what you're accomplishing. And, you know, this is as worthy a cause as, you know, if this, if this cause is not worth 
people donating, I don't know what is. So, thank you. um, So there will be a link to the foundation uh, on Derek's page, and you know we we definitely want to you know check in again uh, at some point in the future. I hope uh, we can maybe do another episode and 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 see what else you uh, what, what other. You know, I don't know if you're going to get into mountain climbing next or uh, Everest or whatever, but it wouldn't it would not surprise me if you told me that that uh, you know that was your next uh, your next challenge. Um, somebody asked me if I wanted to do American Ninja Warrior, and uh, I, I'm I'm hoping that I don't take them up on that. Nothing would surprise me. I, I don't. <laughs> anything's possible. That is um, true. Derek, uh, thank you so much for uh, for spending some time with us today, and we will uh, obviously uh, do everything we can to help spread the word, help raise awareness, and and you know help get some financial support to the foundation because you're training, you're supporting other athletes, I assume. And, you know, without financial support from the community, uh, initiatives like this are not possible. Absolutely. Okay. Well, recycledman.com is the website and everybody go there and uh, please pitch in. Uh, Derek, again, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it just as much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Chuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.